Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, April 27th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The European Union wants to make sweeping changes to how new drugs are regulated on the continent. And the pharma industry has some strong objections. STAT European correspondent Andrew Joseph joins us to explain. We'll also discuss the rest of the week's biggest news in biopharma, from Lilly's huge Manjaro sales to new drug approvals. But first, a word from our sponsor. I'm Step Branded Content Editor Jesse McQuarters, and today I'm joined by Sue Rosenthal, SVP of Life Sciences and Healthcare at New York City Economic Development Corporation, to hear more about New York's robust life sciences capabilities. Sue, can you tell us what's been happening recently? It's such an exciting time. The venture capital community is focused more than ever on New York City-based life sciences startups, with over a billion dollars in private investment just this past year. Jesse, that's almost 800% growth since 2016. The public sector is stepping up too. The city's investing over a billion dollars in life sciences innovation, workforce development, and infrastructure, which has sparked a life sciences boom here that gives new entrants access to space, capital, research, and talent. And how can people learn more? They can visit lifesci.nyc, L-I-F-E-S-C-I dot N-Y-C. So I feel like we're burying the lead a little bit. Meg, what's going on? Oh, well, I'm on a two-week unemployment break. (laughs) And Monday, I start a new job at CNN. Well, first of all, congratulations. Secondly, thank you. what will you be doing for all of the curious listeners of this podcast? Um, I'm joining the health team. I'll be a medical correspondent uh, working with Sanjay Gupta and Elizabeth Cohen and Jacqueline Howard. Those are their amazing health correspondents over there already. Uh, The team is so incredibly nice and welcoming. Sanjay Gupta actually called me this week and like I was telling my husband, I felt like it was like somebody had bought me a cameo like from a celebrity. (laughs) He's like, hi, Meg, this is Sanjay Gupta. And I was like, no way. Um, So it was very, very exciting. Um, So you know, I'll be doing a lot of the same stuff that I've been doing for the last nine years on CNBC uh, with a different audience in mind. It's a you know a broad audience, um, not tailored specifically toward investors. But of course, I think a lot of uh, what I've learned covering um, this industry with that lens will be really, really helpful as I sort of start this new job um, with a with a different focus. Um, so still covering health, science, medicine, um, and just you know taking it to a different audience. So I'll be in New York. Um, I'll have new contact details on Monday and I will share them broadly. And I can't wait to get started. Well, it is fantastic news, Meg. And so congratulations. Uh, We were all very excited and uh, can't wait to see you on CNN. That'll be really awesome. Thank you. I am very excited too. On to the biggest biopharma news of this morning. Uh, It is Thursday, and Eli Lilly reported earnings this morning. Um, In addition to earnings, they had some clinical trial news on their um, obesity drug terzepatide. It was the second phase three clinical trial, and they said in this release they are planning on finalizing their um, approval or their application to the FDA for approval of this in obesity in the next few weeks, hoping for approval by the end of the year. Um, You know, their stock went up uh, on the report. Report this morning, even though I think they missed on the earnings number. Um, but Adam, what were the main takeaways this morning? Why is Wall Street cheering this report? 
Well, the big focus, Meg, you know, was Mountgero sales for the quarter, uh, and they came in at $568.5 million. Uh, that's worldwide sales, uh, including U.S. sales of $536 million. Uh, that is a huge beat uh, above consensus uh, for what people were expecting this quarter. So again, you know, that's a, you know, that's sales largely for type 2 diabetes where Manjaro is approved today. As you mentioned, uh, you know, they are also obviously seeking to expand use of that drug into obesity. And so uh, those phase three studies uh, that you mentioned will will factor into that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's, uh, Meg, to your point, I mean, the company technically underperformed estimates in, in this quarter, but everything is so forward-looking and understandably so with Eli Lilly because Manjaro appears based on these data and the cross-trial comparisons are fraught, but it is perceived to be a more powerful weight loss agent than Novo Nordisk's Wegovi, also known as Ozempic, when marketed for diabetes. And so the future of this market that people expect to swell to $100 billion or more, depending on whom you ask, likely is going to feature a very strong contribution from Eli Lilly in the form of Mount Jaro, this medicine. And then beyond that, later this quarter, any day now, I guess, technically, will we learn the results uh, of a phase three trial of Eli Lilly's treatment for Alzheimer's disease, Denanumab, which, you know, we don't know how that's going to go. But based on precedent, I think there is an expectation or there is at least an optimism that that drug may pan out as well. And so two massive medical categories, obesity and Alzheimer's disease, could be, if not dominated, but definitely strongly participated in by Eli Lilly, which I think kind of underlines the stock reaction both this week and really for the past couple of years. I cannot hear the name Denanumab without getting the song um, Manamana stuck in my head. I'm like, Denanumab. Denanumab. Um, anyway, I was watching CNBC this morning because uh, Eli Lilly CEO David Ricks was on uh, and Joe Kernan was pointing out that Lilly's market cap is approaching Johnson and Johnson's, which is wow. you know just crazy. Um, and it really just Lilly has been this absolute juggernaut. And as you pointed out, Damien, I mean, being in these two categories, these are probably the two things that, you know, Wall Street is most excited about in the drug industry right now. And it's such an interesting time because these are categories that bring bring generalists back into healthcare. Whereas, you know, when the hot drugs are these very complex targets for cancer or rare diseases, those are really difficult things for people who are not specialists to really sink their teeth into. But when it's something like a weight loss drug or an Alzheimer's drug, that is just such a different, you know, proposition for investors more broadly. So Lily is right at the center of that. So separately, there was some fairly big news from the FDA this week in the form of the approval of a biogen treatment for ALS. Adam, what happened? Yeah, Damien, uh, FDA did approve this drug. It's uh, it's called Calsadi, as you said, made by Biogen. And it's for a rare form of ALS that's uh, that's caused by a mutation in a gene called SOD1. Uh, rare meaning, well, really rare. We're talking about probably um, along the lines of you know, 300, 350 patients in the United States who have this form of ALS. Uh, so it's a pretty aggressive form of the disease. And I think what's probably most noteworthy here is that the uh, this was a conditional approval granted under accelerated approval, the first time that the FDA has granted accelerated approval 
to an ALS treatment. And more than that, um, the, 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 the surrogate marker or, you know, the sort of the preliminary evidence that they used to, uh, to approve this drug is a reduction in a protein called neurofilament light chain, um, which is a kind of a marker of nerve damage, uh, in, in neurodegenerative diseases. So, you know, People that I spoke to for this story, I wrote a story about their approval, kind of look at this as kind of an encouraging sign that, you know, with this sort of precedent set by uh, Calsadi, that, you know, you could see acceleration of, of other, either other disease, other drugs for ALS or other drugs for neurodegenerative diseases that might use neurofilament as kind of a, as a biomarker for a conditional approval. In other drug approval news uh, this week, there was uh, big news in the microbiome space, right, Damien, with Ceres Therapeutics, and I just love the name of this drug, Voust. Like, I don't know how else you could say it. <laughs> Voust. And I wonder what the etymology there is, other than it just sounds like a declaration in like a Sergei Eisenstein movie or something. But yes, uh, Ceres Therapeutics, a company that has been working on microbiomic treatments for many years, which is to say treatments that are based on the fact that good bacteria can treat disease. That's a really oversimplified way, but the microbiome is this ecosystem of trillions of bacteria in the human gut that uh, basically moves like weather systems in sickness and in health. And scientists have for a long time been working on ways of changing the weather in the gut by introducing good bacteria in order to fight diseases. And in the case of Voust, it is FDA approved as of this week to treat recurrent infections of C. diff. So basically, you introduce this good bacteria to people who have had that infection before, and this drug has proved in clinical trials to significantly reduce the rate of recurrence um, of, of that infection. And so, I mean, obviously, it's good news for Ceres. It's been a long road for this company. There was a clinical failure, I think, in 2018 that almost seemed to derail everything they were doing. So this is sort of a comeback story that they made it this far. But it's also worth zooming out that if you look at some of the headlines, not just around series, but around microbiomics in general over the past decade, these were medicines that people were pointing to as potential treatments for autoimmune disease, for cancer, for a whole bunch of things. And, and that may yet be to come. But the hype hasn't played out the way that it sounded like it might. So this is obviously an important um, and incremental step for this field of medicine, but also a reminder that this is very difficult. And when you're trying to affect trillions of microbes in the human body, you might run into some biological variants that makes it take longer than you first thought. So Damien, uh, you we said Voust, and you made an, you made a reference to some some director that no one has ever heard of. I, I hear Faust, and I was thinking premium Swedish vodka. But you know, that's that your 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 reference works too. I'm just impressed it's a single syllable drug name. Like there just aren't very many of those. So maybe we need to do a whole thing on how they came up with that. Let's talk to um Scott Pierre Grossi at uh, the Brand Institute. He is the guy who is always quoted when people are wondering about how drugs get their names. Moving on. Um, there was some other Alzheimer's news this week from Alnylam. It's early stage, but guys, uh, tell us about it. Yeah, it's a pretty fascinating program. So the news is, well, I guess maybe one way of looking at it is we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about treatments like Aduhelm uh, in one context and Lecanemab, now called Lecembi, in another, and both of which are antibodies that target uh, amyloid deposits in the brain under the theory that if you clear out those toxic buildups of plaque, you can slow the advance of Alzheimer's disease. 
So where Alnylam comes in is they are looking one or arguably two steps upstream of that process in hopes of accomplishing the same thing or maybe doing even better with respect to treating Alzheimer's disease. So what they have is a treatment that is meant to silence the gene that produces amyloid precursor protein, which based on its name, you can probably assume, is the protein that is the precursor to amyloid. It misfolds and forms these plaques. The alnylam theory is that using uh, an RNAi treatment, which is what all their treatments are, you can silence the gene or at least knock down the expression of the gene that creates amyloid precursor protein or APP, and therefore basically cut off the faucet of the stuff that leads to amyloid. Hmm. Makes sense on paper. Very difficult biologically. What we learned this week is that in a phase one study enrolling 20 patients with early onset Alzheimer's disease, alnylam's treatment seems to be hitting the target. So it's a small study. It's an early stage study. But what they told us is that they're seeing reductions of as much as 90% um, in amyloid precursor protein in those patients who got this medicine, which is injected directly into the spine, thus that it goes into the brain. Hmm. There are Countless caveats to this news, not only the ones about it being a small study and a short duration, but also Alnylam said the treatment was well tolerated generally, but I think the the safety was the major concern going into this. This is pretty uncharted territory. And apparently the Food and Drug Administration saw something concerning in preclinical data on this very drug such that it has placed a partial clinical hold on Alnylam's plans to expand this trial, to enroll more patients, and to offer more doses. Alnylam believes that they can satisfy the FDA's concerns and that it will prove safe in the long term, but that's the short-term overhang, at least, on this moving forward. But it's a really interesting proposition. And, you know, people who have tracked Alzheimer's for a while might remember the notion of, of turning off the faucet has been around for a while, and there were billions of dollars spent on a class of drugs called base inhibitors, which we don't have to get into the whole biology, but we're meant to do just that, they ended up not doing that at all and having pretty serious toxicities that derailed the field. And for some of those medicines, they actually had negative effects on cognition. And there's a lot of theories as to why that is. And so, you know, the base experience does not mean that the APP experience that Alnylam is embarking on is, is doomed or, or anything like that. But it's just a reminder of the need for humility and patience when it comes to new ideas in Alzheimer's disease. But at least on paper, um, this is kind of a fascinating program moving forward. And then arguably, the bigger takeaway from this little drip and drab of, of data via press release is that Alnylam's technology, which has resulted in, I think, five approved drugs total, um, but all of which target genes they want to turn off in the liver, that this is bigger for Alnylam's technology in that it establishes that they can hit targets in the brain. So whatever the fate of this Alzheimer's program, it theoretically opens the door to future treatments for conceivably ALS or Huntington's disease or other kind of hard-to-treat neurological diseases that have a genetic basis like this. The idea that you have to deliver it directly into the spine to get it to go to the brain, you know, that is, you know, a proposition where the diseases you mentioned are so serious that that makes sense. People would do that. But, you know, you have to think about the Alzheimer's. I mean, Alzheimer's is an incredibly serious disease as well, but the field is moving really quickly. Whether that will be something that, you know, that's the option people choose, I think will be very interesting to watch sort of going forward.
After years of planning, haggling, and at least one damaging leak, the European Union is finally moving forward with a sweeping plan to change how the continent regulates drugs. The idea is to at once democratize access to new medicines across the continent while incentivizing pharmaceutical companies to invest in desperately needed new drugs. It's complicated, and everyone is already fighting about it. Joining us to explain the proposal and its vast implications is Andrew Joseph, STAT's newly deployed European correspondent. Drew, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the biggest headline people have probably seen out there is that the EU wants to reduce the period of time drug companies get to sell a new medicine before generic competition comes in. But the actual policy is a lot more complicated that to, to where that headline might be kind of inaccurate. Could you explain how that's expected to work? What they say, what their goal is to is to move from like a one size fits all where every uh, new medicine has this 10 year exclusivity period um, to a baseline of eight years. But then they, you can get more time if you, you know, if you develop drugs for rare diseases, for example, or um, develop drugs in sort of that uh, that fit certain public policy goals as well. And a big key is that uh, European officials want drugs to become available in all 27 member states within um, two years of launch, that is currently a problem. And so basically, they're going to reward companies that do that with additional years of exclusivity as well. So it, the baseline is shrinking, but there are ways to earn back more time. Hmm. Tell us about that disparity in access to new medicines among the member states. How stark are the differences right now and what led to that? So the differences, everyone agrees, are pretty stark. Um, uh, medicine might launch in Germany, um, like a wealthy country like Germany, maybe two years um, or so before it appears in a country like Poland or Romania. The reason for that, kind of people will, <laughs> will tell you different things. Um, drug companies say that it's very complicated because once they get European approval, they still have to go through each country's reimbursement process. And, you know, some small countries don't have the, sort of the infrastructure or might look to a bigger company sort of or sorry, a bigger country, I should say, and what that bigger country does. And so companies say it just takes time. And, you know, it's some of these smaller countries aren't sort of equipped to handle that launch right away. Advocates will say it's actually the companies sort of focusing on where they can make their most money. And, you know, then they can set these really high prices in Germany that's sort of established a benchmark for the rest of the continent. So everyone agrees there is a problem there and that creates a disparity within the EU. But like the reasons they think that problem exists will vary depending on what arguments they're making. So, Drew, how are the drug companies reacting to these proposals? Yeah, so the, the proposal is pretty similar to what's been leaked out over the past couple months. And already ahead of the release this week, drug companies were warning that, you know, this is really bad, basically, like really like pretty strong rhetoric, you know, that it could threaten um, access to medicines across Europe. Maybe drug companies won't want to invest. Maybe they won't run, won't want to run clinical trials. And already sort of Europe is in this seemingly fragile state in terms of its, um, I guess, its drug industry. Like there's less money coming in. There are fewer trials. There's a lot more attention being paid to both the U.S. and Asia. And so it, it's kind of getting tied up in that, that like maybe, you know, if the industry really doesn't like these proposals that like, uh, and they really do start to look elsewhere, this proposal could um, sort of accelerate that uh, what's going on there. You know, the European officials will say there's actually a lot in here that pharma should like. Um, 
you know, they may have cut the baseline of exclusivity, but there are ways to get that, you know, that, that period lengthened. And there are other things as well. There's, uh, they want to speed up authorizations um, from the EMA. So, you know, pharma should like that. There are other incentives for pharma. Um, it's easy, you know, they want to do rolling reviews, they want to do digital submissions. So there's sort of, there's like modernization happening as well that they, that should be pretty pharma friendly, but uh, a lot of the attention is coming down to, you know, IP protection and, and, and that type of thing. It struck me from those CEO reactions, we saw GSK CEO Emma Walmsley and I think Novartis CEO Vasner Simon make this point, like you said, that uh, they have choices when they allocate their capital and they don't need to invest in Europe. And if the regulatory climate goes a certain way, they will invest elsewhere. And it sounded very familiar because drug companies said similar things in the United States over the years and most recently with the proposal for Medicare to negotiate the prices of certain drugs here in this country. And I I wondered for a moment whether they know that we can read the European press as well as the American press. And at a certain point, it's like, what is the elsewhere that they would be investing between the United States and Europe being the largest and most lucrative markets for new medicines in the world? I don't know. It just I, I wonder if anybody in Europe is comfortable enough calling their bluff on that one because I'm not really sure where else they're supposed to go. Damien, I had the exact same thought, uh, you know, as an American who moved here two and a half weeks ago, I was like, this sounds familiar. And everyone was warning they would, that would hurt, you know, and the IRA would hurt investment in the US. And now everyone is saying here in Europe that whatever Europe does is going to drive investment to the US. So I'm not exactly sure how to square that um, or reconcile that. I mean, it just goes to show that maybe these these policy fights and arguments are actually quite universal um, wherever you are. I mean, I guess I would what some people have sort of said is that the US market is just so massive that like you can't totally ignore it. Um, and, you know, there's more VC funding there. So there are other factors at, at, uh, at hand as well. Um, and, you know, you know, in addition to the U.S., companies also say, like, you know, the number of clinical trials and, and financing available in Asia is just like really exploding as it sort of stagnates here in Europe. So I think it's yeah, it is sort of funny to see those those same arguments being played out here. But um, I guess there are some some other factors as well that maybe maybe the U.S. is a little bit less vulnerable to, uh, I guess, reduced investment than some of the arguments around the IRA would have led you to believe. So what else is in the proposed legislation? Yeah, so this is a, a big, big package. And obviously, the the exclusivity periods have gotten the most attentions. But this is the first update to sort of pharma policy in Europe in 20 years. And so they're trying to address everything, you know, everything that's come up since then, whether it's, you know, genetic medicines and the lessons learned from COVID. So, you know, it's everything from, as we talked about, sort of like streamlining the EMA process to um, addressing drug shortages, to addressing the uh, cl- the impact on climate of pharmaceutical manufacturing. A big one is um, they want, Europe wants to do something about antibacterial resistance. And as everyone who listens to this podcast knows, basically, like that's a big problem and pharma d- doesn't really invest in new antibiotics that in a way that would benefit the, the the world, basically. And so there's a proposal here to provide vouchers to companies that would develop novel uh, classes of antibiotics. And, it, you know, it's what they what European officials say is, is needed to address, like, you know, this market failure where the world needs new antibiotics, but pharma is not really doing it on their own. So as we've noted, this is a proposal. So, Drew, uh, what happens next and, and how soon before this becomes actual policy? 
Yeah. So this was this his proposal. And, you know, like any, you know, I guess like bill, there's going to be a ton of lobbying around it. There already has been, um, although so far European officials have held pretty strong in terms of like the top line uh, aspects of it. But, you know, this might not be enacted for two years. There are also elections in uh, next year in Europe. So that could sort of sway what this looks like. So it's still probably years away from being implemented. But it's definitely like a major step now that this proposal, which had before just been sort of leaked or rumored about, uh, is, you know, officially out. And like sort of the European Commission has said, this is what we intend to do. So zooming out, you are coming to us right now from London, uh, where you have begun a new role as Stats Europe correspondent safely ensconced in the UK, which in my understanding is in the driver's seat of the European experiment um, based on recent <laughs> actions. Uh, I forgot what my question was. Oh, well, tell people what that entails. What are you going to be covering? What are you on the lookout for? What can they expect from Stat's new European landfall? Yeah, um, I uh, yeah, I got here just a few weeks ago um, and I'm attempting to hit the ground running, but you know, it's a lot of logistics, I would say. But, you know, STAT has had sort of, for a long time, it was a joke that would, like, we would eventually have someone in Europe. Um, and then it happened, um, which is a great <laughs> sign of STAT's, I don't know, I guess, success or ability to grow over the past couple of years. So I feel very lucky to be here. Um, but the goal is kind of uh, to, co- to expand our coverage of European, um, a lot of it will be focused on biopharma news, um, but, you know, whatever, you know, whatever else happens, like in the health and medicine world. So it should be a nice variety. But yeah, if people have thoughts on what's going on with European biopharma or UK biopharma, you know, please, please get in touch. I have a lot to learn. But uh, no, I'm, I'm excited to be here. The other Cambridge Center of Biopharma Research. Yes, the I had was having coffee with people yesterday and they were talking about, I, I might get this name wrong, but I think they said Golden Triangle or something, which is the Oxford, Cambridge, London triangle. And I was like, is that not what they call it in North, North Carolina? No, but that's the research that's triangle. Research I don't triangle. know. I'm going to get, I'm going to get everything <laughs> mixed up. Yeah. <laughs> there is a golden triangle in global heroin production, oh, but yeah. that's probably not <laughs> probably the wrong one. Yeah. <laughs> so Drew, any observations as uh, an American and an American reporter in London these days? So how's it going? Um, you know, I, I've been asking people here if, if, you know, like the practice of journalism is done, you know, differently, if there's things I should know about that. But, um, I, everyone says it's pretty similar. So I don't know, I'm still sort of maybe just overall adjusting and getting settled in and, you know, um, but I have an apartment that was, or a flat, I should say. So step one, um, I have a place to live, which will also be stats bureau. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'll learn more about the, or run into more culture shock or just really find new ways to stick out like an American, which I'm sure I'm already doing without even knowing. We might want to lean into the, uh, tabloid journalism. Yeah. Yeah. In, in <laughs> That's what you know, stat can, needs. For stat. Yeah. That'd be good. Well, Drew, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Talk to you all soon. Hey there, my name is Nicholas St. Fleur. I'm a science reporter here at STAT, and I'm thrilled to announce the second season of Color Code, STAT's podcast on racial health inequities. In our second season, we're taking things local to my hometown of Long Island. Long Island's history is one of segregation. Um, Long Island continues to be one of the most segregated parts of our country. Where you live has a huge impact on your health. Long Island is a microcosm of racial health inequities that exist in suburbs across the country. 
the racial residential segregation in a place like Nassau County, starting from infant mortality to premature death and everything in between. We see that many of these causes of death are consistently higher in communities of color. We'll hear from researchers, patients, clinicians, and advocates on the health inequities Long Islanders face and how communities here are trying to close these gaps. From the front lines of a battle over a landfill, to the efforts to address food insecurity and disparities in maternal mortality across the island. The season premieres later this spring, with episodes airing every other week. Racism in medicine is a national emergency. Together, let's raise the alarm. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Embanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what comes to mind when you hear the word voust. You can do all <laughs> that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Thank you.